In 2017, Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius Matthew Desmond published Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, which transformed America's understanding of poverty and economic exploitation. Inspired by Desmond's book, the Evicted exhibition at the Ypsilanti District Library brings visitors into the world of low-income renter eviction, challenging visitors to face the enormity of one of 21st century America's most devastating problems. This month's episode of Ipsy Stories is being released in conjunction with this exhibit. While the focus of the episode is more on discriminatory housing laws and practices than the practice of eviction itself, both these subjects touch on issues of housing insecurity and all of the other types of insecurity that are brought upon by it. Don't forget to check out the exhibit, which will be in the Whitaker Road Library community room through the end of March. Hi there, my name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. In this episode, Leah Zeus looks at the effect of Federal Housing Administration underwriting policies, Homeowners Loan Corporation risk maps, also known as redlining maps, and racially restrictive covenant agreements on communities like Ypsilanti. By focusing on policies and policy discussions at the federal, state, and local level, he's able to show how discriminatory housing practices can trickle down from Washington to Lansing all the way to Ypsilanti. Leah Zeus is an Ypsilanti-based historian whose work focuses on housing, race, and the built environment. Much of his research is in architectural history with an interest in 20th century American housing policy and its relation to racialized capitalism. So, without further ado, the library would like to share this presentation by historian Lee Azus. This podcast is dedicated to A.P. Marshall, the great chronicler of Ypsilanti's black history. Michigan Avenue between Huron and Adams Street historically served as Ypsilanti's central business district. Clothing stores, barbers, grocers, movie theaters, and the post office were located on it or on intersecting blocks. 
Michigan Avenue also served as a rough separation line between the city's white and black neighborhoods. While the actual boundaries excluded South Huron Street and jagged down to Catherine Street, and an all-white residential subdivision was encircled by an all-African residential neighborhood west of South Adams Street, the area and neighborhoods south of Michigan Avenue from South Washington to the city's western edge and southern edges was known to African Americans as the South Side. In several interviews that A.P. Marshall conducted in the 1980s, residents recall the segregation and the discrimination at stores and restaurants on Michigan Avenue. While much of this was informal and reflected the Jim Crow racism at the turn of the 20th century, legislation and commerce codified the separation between the races and ensured that Ypsilanti remained racially segregated and unequal. In this podcast, we will explore the active and intentional roles of government and businesses in implementing and perpetuating discrimination well past Supreme Court decisions that should have eliminated it. And we will look at how this has shaped Ypsilanti. Let's begin with this quote. Quote, A realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individual whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in the neighborhood. Unquote. This is the Code of Ethics from the National Association of Real Estate Boards, also known as NARAB, an all-white association that is now known as the National Association of Realtors. Note the language here. This is not a matter of freedom to dispose of one's property as they see fit. Instead, quote, detrimental to property values is the working phrase here. The National Association is using racism, in fact, a racialized capitalism, to ensure rising property values, rising property values for white Americans. Nathan William McChesney wrote the Real Estate Industry Code of Ethics, the principle of real estate law, in 1927. McChesney wrote, quote, the individual citizen, whether he be black or white, may refuse to sell or lease property to any particular individual or class of individuals. The power of the whites To exclude the blacks from purchasing their property implies the power of the blacks to exercise the same prerogative over property which they may own. There is therefore no discrimination within the Civil Rights Clause of the Constitution. This same argument would be made eventually before the Supreme Court in 1948 in the case that would make racial covenants unenforceable, and that's what we will get to. But before asking why the NARAB adopted this position, Here is the legal scaffolding it rested on. Buchanan v. Warley in 1917 was a Supreme Court case that invalidated zoning laws which had prohibited black people from living in certain areas of cities and counties. Oddly enough, in this case, it was Buchanan, a white man, who sued Warley, a black man, because Warley pulled out of a deal with Buchanan to purchase his home in a white neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky, due to certainty he would be prohibited from inhabiting it. The court ruled in favor of Warley, saying that the zoning law, quote, destroyed the right of the individual to acquire, enjoy, and dispose of his property, unquote. That meant cities could not legally make all-white neighborhoods off-limits to blacks, Asians, Jews, Mexican-Americans, or other non-white Americans. Then, the Michigan Supreme Court in the Parmalee v. Morris case 
protected, open, non-segregated admission to theaters and schools, but affirmed that property rights trumped civil rights. So in this case, Charles and Anna Morris, an African-American couple, bought an undeveloped parcel in Pontiac, which contained a racial restriction. What is a racial restriction, or what is a racial covenant? Covenants and restrictions are a set of legally enforceable rules that serve to direct the development and habitation of individual homes and subdivisions. A typical restriction in Ypsilanti might ban farm animals or sheds. It could prohibit any manufacturing within the subdivision. It could mandate setbacks, which are distances from the sidewalk to the front door, the distances between each home. It could mandate the minimum construction cost of a new home on the property or the number of trees to be planted. A racial restriction would be one in a long line of restrictions and could say, and this is an actual restriction from Ypsilanti, quote, the said lots shall be used and occupied by members of the Caucasian race only, except for bona fide domestic servants of a different race or nationality, unquote. Different covenants would name the excluded race or ethnic groups in different parts of the United States. So, in the Michigan case, this Parmalee case, the court ruled unanimously that the covenant was not a state action, but a private agreement between landowners, and therefore they ruled it did not violate the 14th Amendment. So finally, in Corrigan versus Buckley, a case which began in 1922, but was decided in 1926, the Supreme Court affirmed Michigan's reasoning in the Parmalee case that racial restrictions did not violate the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed the due process and equal protection before the law. It is this ruling, and perhaps the years of its litigation, that made racial restrictions a standard practice in white developed subdivisions. It is also why we see that in 1927, in another case, Schulte v. Stark, involving a home on Lakewood Avenue on the far east side of Detroit, that the Starks, a black couple, could own the property in a racially restricted white subdivision, but they could not legally live there. So, based on these legal precedents, we find racial restrictions in the list of enforceable covenants and restrictions in subdivisions built in Ypsilanti after these legal cases. College Heights, Ainsworth Park, Fairview Heights, Golden Rule, Hagues, Hannah, Lindsay Gardens, Palma, Prospect Gardens, Prospect Park, Ypsilanti East, these are some of the subdivisions with racial restrictions that I've managed to find in Ypsilanti and Ypsilanti Township. Streets in these subdivisions include portions of Washtenaw, Roosevelt, Whittier, Cambridge, Oxford, Collegewood, Garland, Vinewood, Forest, Dwight, Hemp Hill, Gordon, Prospect, Stanley, Carver, Thomas, Charles, Arnett, Emmerich, Ford, and Ainsworth. These subdivisions were laid out in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and are found mostly on the eastern, northern, and western ends of Ypsilanti. I found it difficult to track down racial restrictions in the older, more centrally located whites-only subdivisions that were established before these court cases. So, for example, I've yet to find racial restrictions for the subdivisions that make up the normal park neighborhood. In one case, I traced back the deeds and documents of the house of a major Ypsilanti real estate agent 
who lived on Oakwood Street from 1924 to 1969, expecting to find a racial restriction within the agreement for that one single property as opposed to the subdivision, yet I couldn't find any restrictions. So with the law upholding racial restrictions established and the Depression in full force, the federal government instituted a series of programs under newly established agencies, including the Homeowners Loan Corporation and the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, to help people refinance mortgage debt to aid the decimated banking and building industries and to offer guaranteed mortgages for the first time to qualified borrowers. To aid the housing industry, the FHA created a series of publications for the building industry on best practices to lay out new subdivisions and build economical, affordable houses. The suggestions became the template for design to assure approval of government-backed mortgages and mortgage insurances and loan guarantees. Many of the homes in the subdivisions I mentioned in Ypsilanti look very much like the houses that illustrated the FHA brochure called Principles of Planning Small Houses. Part of the crisis in foreclosures and repossessions that led up to and fueled the Depression was the type of mortgages that had been typically issued before the Roosevelt administration reformed the lending industry. Mortgages could require a 50% down payment with a balloon payment of the entire balance after five or seven years. In other words, a borrower was expected to pay off the loan balance in one large payment at the end of the loan period. Property owners often had to refinance the loan over and over again to do that. In 1934, under Roosevelt's National Housing Act, a division called the Homeowners Loan Corporation bought underwater mortgages from banks and lenders, thereby clearing the debt off their books, and these loans were then renegotiated at a lower rate with the property owner with payments made to the government. At the same time, the FHA created a new mortgage policy. The FHA insured 90% of a loan so that banks would feel freer to lend because now the loans are insured. At the same time, the FHA encouraged amortization in which instead of paying off the entire loan in one balloon payment, after a relatively brief period, a homeowner could build equity by making monthly payments over a longer time frame. This was a remarkable transformation of lending practices. It simultaneously rescued banks and lending institutions while opening up homeownership to the masses. The caveat here is that the new loan programs were intended primarily for white borrowers. The FHA created an underwriting manual for appraisers that was intended to assure the value of a house over time in order for the FHA to guarantee the loan. The underwriting manual was made up of 28 features organized under four categories, property, location, the borrower, and the mortgage pattern. The features such as protection from adverse influences, architectural attractiveness, the borrower's reputation, and attitude towards obligations were used in assessing risk. The underwriting manual effectively discouraged multifamily housing through its valuation of rental properties. It expressed concern over the long-term consequences to a neighborhood in which tenants of a, quote, radically lower income level than that of the typical property owner, unquote, resided. The manual made clear that, quote, 
The first indication of blight is usually the introduction of lower income level tenants, unquote. But here is where the open, unvarnished racism appears in the government's housing policy. Part 2, Section 2, Paragraph 228 of the Underwriting Manual codified the desirability of racial covenants and restrictions. Quote, where adjacent lots or blocks possess altogether different restrictions, especially for type and use of structures and racial occupancy, the effect of such restrictions is minimized and adequate protection cannot be considered to be present. Unquote. This paragraph was explicit about the loss of home value for whites-only subdivisions built adjacent to neighborhoods with a different non-white racial composition. The paragraph that followed defined adverse influences as, quote, business and industrial uses, lower class occupancy, and inharmonious racial groups, unquote. The desirability of racial restrictions and covenants within subdivisions was codified in Part 2, Section 2, Paragraph 284, Subsection 3, Subsection G, quote, Recommended restrictions include the following. Prohibition of the occupancy of properties except by the race for which they are intended, unquote. How these paragraphs of the underwriting manual influence lending and mortgage guarantees was illustrated graphically in a series of 239 metropolitan area color-coded risk maps that were produced by the Homeowners Loan Corporation in the 1930s. Available to appraisers, banks, and other issuers of loans, the A, green, B, blue, C, yellow, and D, red, sections of the maps designated low to high-risk neighborhoods, respectively. Highest risk reflected policies of racial, income, and homeownership bias, as well as aversion to older or multifamily housing stock. In short, the underwriting manual assigns the highest risk to racially mixed or non-white neighborhoods and also assigned risk to adjacent neighborhoods to the red-lined areas. Oh, and that's where we get the term redlining, by the way, from the red sections of these maps. So in Michigan, the Homeowners Loan Corporation made four metropolitan maps, Detroit, Grand Rapids, Flint, and Kalamazoo. Although Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor did not have an official map, the effect on lending and segregation was the same. I would assume that the local Ypsilanti banks had their own set of maps that considered the racial composition and the age and type of housing stock in each neighborhood, as well as the income level of residents. As I mentioned in another podcast on the history of urban renewal in Ypsilanti, the historian A.P. Marshall's collection of interviews, accessible on the Ypsilanti District Library's website, includes an interview with Charles Eugene Beatty, the principal of the Harriet Street Elementary School, later known as Perry Elementary School. Mr. Beatty, in the interview, discusses the near impossibility of he and his wife, college-educated African-Americans, to get a federally insured home loan to build his home on the South Side. At a time when, by all appearances, the FHA policy fostered wealth accumulation among the white working class, Mr. Beatty's story leads one to the conclusion that the FHA fostered wealth depletion through active denial of the aspirations of African-American citizens. 
After World War II, home building exploded due to FHA policies as well as the GI Bill of Rights that allowed even more liberal lending terms than standard FHA protocol. However, the racial covenants continued to be written into deeds. In 1948, two cases, Sipes versus McGee of Detroit and Shelley versus Kramer, a case from St. Louis, were combined for hearing by the Supreme Court into Shelley versus Kramer. Thurgood Marshall and Lauren Miller sought to overturn the Michigan Supreme Court reading of the 14th Amendment's, quote, equal protection of the laws, which they had interpreted as protection of the white residents' right for, quote, enforcement of their private contracts, meaning their covenants, rather than African Americans as a race to have equal access to property on an equal basis as white citizens. The lawsuits claimed the racial covenants, which precluded black residency in restricted neighborhoods, violated the 14th Amendment. In its legal reasoning, the Supreme Court decided that it was unconstitutional for the government to enforce racially restrictive covenants. The issue then was not the language of the covenants, but the state's enforcement of that language. The court reasoned that if the state were to intervene to enforce the covenant, the state itself would be violating the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. The court stated, quote, We hold that in granting judicial enforcement of the restrictive agreements in these cases, the states have denied petitioners the equal protection of the laws and that, therefore, the action of the state courts cannot stand. We have noted that freedom from discrimination by the states in the enjoyment of property rights was among the basic objectives sought to be effectuated by the framers of the 14th Amendment. That such discrimination has occurred in these cases is clear. Because of the race or color of these petitioners, they have been denied rights of ownership or occupancy enjoyed as a matter of course by other citizens of different races or colors. Unquote. The National Association of Real Estate Boards filed an amicus brief upholding the rights of the white residents to enter into these legal contracts. The organization defined equal protection as it did when Nathan William McChesney wrote in 1927 as the right of both black and white property owners to enforce racial restrictive covenants. The court swatted that reasoning away by writing that there had been, to date, no legal case of a white property owner filing actions against racially restricted covenants against black people. With the Supreme Court ruling making the racial covenants unenforceable, the real estate industry changed tactics to ensure no significant change in the exclusion of non-whites into all-white neighborhoods. And I will discuss that in just a minute. So by 1950, the FHA's underwriting manual was updated and the racial descriptions were removed. The FHA had already stepped up its underwriting of all-black subdivisions and individual mortgages to African-American families at the same time as the Shelley versus Kramer decision. But still, only 4% of total loans under conditions of strict segregation were made to African Americans in 1950. Of the new segregated African American subdivisions being built through the 1940s and 50s, half were constructed in the American South. But Ypsilanti too had a segregated African American subdivision built in this era. The Amos Washington subdivision was named in honor of Amos Washington, Ypsilanti's housing commissioner and the second African-American elected to Ypsilanti City Council in 1947. It took shape in 1954 and comprises all the homes on Burton Court, named for John Burton, 
the third African-American elected to Ypsilanti City Council, and the first African-American mayor of our city. In three months, all the parcels in advance of construction were sold to middle-class African-American families. So, how did the National Association of Real Estate Boards accommodate itself to the changes in racial covenants brought about by the Shelley versus Kramer decision? Its Code of Ethics in 1922 stated under Article 34, as I read at the beginning, quote, a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individual whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in the neighborhood, unquote. In 1955, this paragraph was changed to read as follows, quote, a realtor should not be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or use which will clearly be detrimental to property values in that neighborhood. By removing, quote, members of any race or nationality or any individual whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values, unquote, and relying on the opaque character of property or use, the real estate industry continued to exclude African Americans from white neighborhoods. The local real estate boards around this part of Michigan continued racist practices in the name of property rights. For example, this is the position of the boards on a proposed Michigan non-discrimination in housing bill from 1960, known as Rule 9 of the Michigan Securities and Exchange Commission. Quote, all private owners of private property have the right to determine with whom they are to do business and that the owner has an unqualified moral and legal right to define without limitation the persons with who the broker may deal in consummating the transaction with which the broker is involved as an agent. Unquote. The president of the Ypsilanti Board of Realtors, Herbert Murray, was on the Ypsilanti Human Relations Commission, which was an interracial city commission dealing with race issues in the city that was established in 1958. Marguerite Eaglin was a founding member of the commission and was the head of the local chapter of the NAACP. In an interview in 1981 with A.P. Marshall, accessible on the Ypsilanti District Library website, she described the commission this way, quote, It was not designed to move us forward. It was designed to shut us up and keep us confined, unquote. Herbert Murray testified in Lansing, and he spoke on a radio program in opposition to Rule 9, the open housing law, the NAACP then wrote a letter to the Human Relations Commission asking for his, quote, immediate removal in August 1960. Murray responded at a city council meeting on September 19, 1960, that, quote, I want it understood that I did not take a stand on discrimination, unquote. Murray defended himself, saying open housing policy would destroy human relations due to conflicts it would create. He insisted that the commission needed a realtor on it, and he went on to say that if non-discriminatory open housing rules were enacted, it would cause hardship on real estate brokers who would lose their licenses by refusing to deal with black buyers. Dr. Thomas Bass, a respected elder of the South Side, spoke at that council meeting asking, quote, If Mr. Murray was aware that as a member of the Human Relations Commission, he was not representing any group, and he's not authorized to do so. His major function is as a member of the Human Relations Commission relative to this group, unquote. 
John Burton called for Murray's removal due to his testimony, which contravened aims of the Human Relations Commission. According to the Ypsilanti Daily Press, Burton stated, quote, it is no longer necessary for Negroes to accept second-rate citizenship because they no longer have to, unquote. The Ypsilanti Daily Press added, quote, Mr. Murray asked if the Human Relations Commission was designed as an instrument of the NAACP or of the people of Ypsilanti, unquote. Mayor Fulford wrote to Yvonne Williams of the NAACP on January 24, 1961, that, quote, the actions and statements of Mr. Murray at the aforementioned meeting were unpardonable and in no way is condoned by counsel, unquote. But he proved Marguerite Eaglin's characterization of the Human Relations Commission when he stated, quote, that human relations problems confronting the commission can only be reached through the impartial deliberation of the commission without regard to personal differences that may have or are now existing within the commission itself, unquote. I'm sorry to say I don't recall how this controversy ended. I believe Mr. Murray was not reappointed to the commission when his term expired, but I don't believe he was forced out of his seat. At any rate, the piecemeal approach to non-discriminatory access to housing demonstrated in the Human Relations Commission or Michigan's Rule 9 was a failure. Most well known in, in the United States was the 1963 California Fair Housing Act, also known as the Rumford Act, it was a major step forward in housing rights that was overwhelmingly repealed by California voters a year later in 1964 in ballot Proposition 14. It was only the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King that finally prompted the United States Congress to pass laws that would prohibit the very thing that the National Association of Real Estate Boards and the Ypsilanti Board of Realtors and Herbert Murray had championed. A week to the day after the assassination of Dr. King, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which contained the Fair Housing Act. A Supreme Court decision that same year gave teeth to the law, which had weak enforcement mechanisms. But the struggle for fair housing continues. In the Supreme Court case known as Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs, versus the Inclusive Communities Project Incorporated in 2015, the court, by a 5-4 to four vote, voted to affirm that even discriminatory outcomes in a particular policy, not just the policy's intent, was covered by the Fair Housing Act. That is a major victory in its understanding of racism as not only a law or a policy's intent, but its disparate impact on racial groups. And until a disparate impact doctrine is accepted widely by the courts and legislation, these narrow victories are at risk of being overturned or undermined. So, the impact of racism and white supremacy on housing from the redlining maps, FHA underwriting policies, and racial restrictions are visible in the landscape around us. Their enduring impact, not just on segregated housing, but on access to clean water, clean air, and clean soil, are part of this legacy. Here in Ypsilanti, we just have to look around to see it. Thank you for your attention, and goodbye. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam.
A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, you'll be listening to an interview of legendary Ypsilanti-based musician Lee Osler, composer and performer of the song Back to Ypsilanti. Mr. Osler will be interviewed by Shelley Salant of WCBN-FM Ann Arbor's Local Music Show. Mr. Osler has so much to share that this is going to be a two-part episode for both March and April. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors all about us, too. Bye now.